Welcome to the Scale Tech and AI Growth Lab podcast. I am your host, Jay Farr at Tech Fusion Systems. Our guest is Bill Cologne from SinglePass. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jay. Happy to be here. Uh, so you can, can you give us a brief overview of SinglePass and what you guys do? Sure. SinglePass was uh, created by two interventional radiology physicians in Phoenix, Arizona, who do biopsy procedures routinely every day. And they had bleeding problems, and they had no technique or device that could resolve those issues. So they invented an electrocautery device, the only one of its kind, that can be used during biopsy procedures. And the device literally either prevents bleeding, or if bleeding has occurred, it stops bleeding. So this tremendously reduces adverse events in patients undergoing biopsy procedures. So a very clever idea with patent protection that we developed and are close to the market launch. It's very interesting. So I don't know a lot about biopsies, but basically it's just pulling a, a, a tissue sample out of the body from somewhere, right? Yeah. Usually you're getting a biopsy procedure. Most likely you're suspected of maybe having cancer. So they're going to, under ultrasound guidance, poke a large hollow needle through your skin as deep as it needs to go, sometimes five, six, five or six inches within your body to reach the target area in question. We reach through that needle, literally tear out a tissue sample that they can give to the pathologist so they can do pathology to see if it is malignant tumor. And then they currently just simply withdraw the needle and apply pressure and, and hope you don't bleed. But we have a method of using our device that goes in with the guide needle still in place. And we basically heat seal or just cauterize the tissue that's been damaged by the biopsy tools. And this uh, prevents bleeding or if bleeding has started, it stops the bleeding. So these needles are fairly narrow, correct? They're fairly small, but just very long? Yeah, they are relatively small, but there's this fight between if you use too small of a needle, the tissue sample you pull out isn't adequate for the pathologist. So you try to do a balance of the needle size and um, the tissue size you need. With our device, you can use a little bit larger needle without the concern of bleeding. So they are, they have about a half a millimeter diameter in those. So it is pretty significant. It is a pretty reasonable hole that they're poking. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And so sometimes there's bleeding, sometimes there isn't, but basically your design pretty much prevents bleeding regardless, right? Instead of right now, the, the current state of the art is you hope the patient doesn't bleed and you keep them in the facility just in case they do so you can fix it. But with our device, uh, the clinical study we did, all 60 patients, we were able to show with ultrasound that no one was bleeding in any of the target tissue areas that were biopsy. We can relieve the anxiety from the patients and relieve the anxiety from the clinicians so they know when the patients leave the procedure room, they're okay. They don't have to worry about follow-up. They don't have to worry about uh, potential adverse events. And what typically is the procedure when the patient's held over if they do have bleeding? What, how severe is that? The most severe is occasionally folks will die. They will hemorrhage and die. In the two and a half years I've been doing this, I've talked to three people who've lost loved ones because they were bleeding internally after a biopsy procedure and it wasn't recognized. So they literally were sent home. They hemorrhaged. All of a sudden you'll have fever, severe pain. Your vitals will go crazy. You have to get back to the hospital in a hurry for open surgical repair. 
and occasionally, it's a very small percentage, occasionally folks don't survive. If you do survive, it's a pretty brutal open surgery procedure. There are more minor procedures where they do some type of clotting procedure, but any intervention routinely will cause an admission to the hospital. Then you start the dollar clock of tens of thousands of dollars just to take care of an issue that you could have prevented. Mm-hmm. Plus, that's I'm guessing that's surgery. There's a lot of recovery time, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, we were able to get a chart. Uh, one of the physicians who saw our device, he said, hey, I had a person who hemorrhaged. We sent her home after a kidney biopsy. About 10 hours later, she came back in. We had to do open surgical repair. He sent me her chart. They spent $80,000 on the procedure to surgically repair her hemorrhage. So that's a cost of not preventing someone from bleeding. Yeah, it is scary that the the, the current um, practice is, is, and I don't want to say it this way uh, it, out of any kind of disrespect for the medical profession, but it's like uh, luck of the draw, whether you have bleeding or not currently. It's very interesting. And how did this come about? How did this idea for, for a product that would prevent this come about? So the two physicians that came up with the idea, they were working at a liver transplant center. So routinely, those are biopsied. In addition to that, as part of being an interventional radiologist, you do biopsies frequently. So each of those clinicians was doing four or five biopsies every day. And they just ran into enough problems where they said there just literally has to be a better way. And I, it's funny, I do have a, a device in front of me, and this is the, the probe that goes in that cauterizes. But they just said, look, instead of hoping we don't have issues, we've got to figure out a way to make a, a product that works. So we have batteries in the handle and it superheats this tip and this is what goes through the guide needle that's amazing i envisioned this enormous like piece of equipment that you'd have to roll around on like casters or something no and it's in in this little skinny probe here there's four wires that are going down to a heater coil at the very end and we use two double a batteries literally in the handle so when you press this on button this tip will get up to 90 degrees centigrade and that's enough. If we did a demo and dragged it over a stake, it would look just like your grill marks on a stake. So it's enough to cauterize the tissue to prevent bleeding or stop bleeding if it already started. So a very clever idea and not simple technology. It, it took a little bit of development to, to finish this. Yeah, that's a really small device and you have wires, you have a coil. Obviously, you still have to have enough room to get the, the right amount of uh, tissue sample out of it. So yeah, very interesting idea. And how did you get involved in this? Or at what point in this invention did you get involved and and see a a place in the market? How did that happen? I was introduced to these two physicians by a a doctor friend that I had developed another product for. We we successfully sold the product. So now when other clinicians that he knows have ideas, he routinely will just introduce me. And most of the time, the ideas aren't great. But this time, I, I learned about this product. And... So I have a group that I work with. The very first thing we did was physician interviews. Other physicians who do biopsy procedures, do you have this issue? And it was interesting. I got included in an interventional radiology chat room where somebody posed the question, what do you do during biopsy procedures to prevent bleeding? And literally, there were, for every physician that replied, they had a different answer of what they did. So everyone had their own homemade remedy of what they tried to do. So that showed me there was no standard of care and there was no available device to use. So that, in addition, we hired another company to do market research 
they looked up every published article that had biopsy procedure outcomes. And we saw that there was a reasonable percentage of folks that had problems. So that convinced us to work with the doctors to form a new company called Single Pass. And then uh, we raised the funding, did the device development, ran a clinical trial. Now we are close to regulatory approvals in the U.S. and Europe. And once we get there, the goal would be now to, to sell this to a larger company who already has sales reps that call an interventional radiologist. So it's a process. This took the company's 28 months old. Yeah. Wow. It's really interesting. I love the way you described the kind of your process there of finding the product market fit, finding out and doing your research to find out what other people are doing and uh, what other people think about it. What was, what was the response that you got from other physicians in that field when described the problem and solution? Was there a lot of overwhelming positive feedback? Did you have mixed ideas or, or did you share that at all with them? It was interesting. The interviews, we got mixed feedback. So I would say about a third said, this is a great idea. About a third said, yeah, I'll, I'll use it selectively. And then about a third said, I don't see the need for it. So that kind of left it up in the air until we hired this third party. We said, go do a PubMed search. Give us the data for everything that's published. That would be peer-reviewed published data. And then when we saw that data, it showed a reasonable amount of adverse events. So we learned that the physician interviews tend to not be accurate. And in one of the investment calls, they had an interventional radiologist on the call to do their diligence, one investment group. And this physician claimed that they had done kidney biopsies for 20 years and never had a single adverse event. So then I talked with several other physicians who are literally had unbelievably impossible. There's nobody could make that claim. Yeah, so that sounds have, very unlikely, right? That's a very difficult to statistic to, you could claim very low numbers and say, okay, that, that could be the case. Let's look into it. But yeah, for someone to say none in that length of time sounds very suspect to me. Yeah, but we got that. And that group did not invest because of that feedback. But we said, look, the published data, none of the published papers have a zero adverse event rate. So congratulations to you. You must be an incredible clinician. The kidney's a blood filter, you're poking it with a large hollow needle, and you never have a problem. But you have to work around that sometimes. But once we saw the published data, and the other thing too, I think we have 11 physician investors in the company because they understand the problem, because they have the problem. So I think those were two of the things, the published data and the response from physician investors told us we were onto something that had value. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really important point uh, to understand and in a, a, a really good process of due diligence is you did interviews with a lot of professionals, which you can learn a lot from those and you never really know what they're going to say or, or what you might learn, but then also to take a look at the published data and compare them. I think that's a really good takeaway from how you guys got to this point. So right now you guys are looking for an exit in some period of time. And what are the major benchmarks that you want to pass before you are going to look for that exit? We are already under diligence by a couple of companies. We have two issued patents with a few more pending. And the biggest thing, but once we actually have both regulatory approvals, we have verbal approval of the CE mark, which gives us the right to sell in, in Europe. So that'll literally happen any day. You have to receive these certificates in the mail. So once we uh, have that, we've already lined up a handful of distributors. We'll do a limited market release in Europe. 
The timing for the way it looks with the FDA, several discussions and our submission has been accepted, probably will be the end of the year. Most likely there'll be more urgency from potential acquirers once we have both approvals in. So I'm Q4 or Q1, if uh, all goes well, and the diligence, uh, we meet the diligence requirements, we possibly could be acquired. Yeah, I would imagine as you get closer to getting checks in those boxes, there would be more interested parties. That makes sense. So this is this device is actually going to be used probably in, in Europe first, correct? Yes, most likely because we already have that verbal approval. That literally could be any day. So we picked a select group of distributors that we know focus on endometriologists. They've already done diligence to test market. And they've come back and said, yeah, we have folks that want to use this. The first inventory is built, waiting just for the certificate to arrive, and then we'll ship and we'll just use it in select centers. We don't try to go broad. We'll pick a handful of centers in each country to go deep, where we get really high-quality users that become product advocates. Because in the end, for the diligence that we'll have to survive from strategics, they're going to go ask our users, what do you think of this device? How well does it work? How often do you use it? So that's what we'll try to focus on with the limited market release. That makes perfect sense. And then how far off do you think approval is for use in the United States? Probably November or December. Based on when we submitted the FDA's feedback, the calls we've had with them, yeah, I would highly likely before the end of the year. Yeah, that's right around the corner. So you guys are, I'm sure, very busy. Yeah, we're, we're just... Focusing, and again, you are right, those are two big boxes that need to be checked. Once we have both regulatory approvals, everybody's attention becomes a little bit more urgent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So what kind of plans do you have looking ahead? Do you have, you mentioned uh, earlier that you have a network of medical professionals that will come to you guys with ideas, other solutions or needs that they've identified in the marketplace and ideas about how to go about that. Is there anything else on your radar Moving forward, any other promising? Yeah, we actually did, we funded three companies in 2021 and they're all in different stages. A second company called Sonoris is, I think, a fantastic idea. It's a venous stent that goes in the back of your brain to treat uh, tinnitus. They're ringing in your ears. And we already have uh, been through first and man in that uh, company and we're going for the next stage of funding. We did close the second round and now we're moving on. That will require a large clinical study, but the early results of that have been fantastic. Through that, we also do diligence on more uh, products as we get ideas from physicians. We have a bandwidth issue now because we have three or four in the queue and you can only take on so many at a time. But we continue to get outreach from doctors. We look at all of them. If we can't help, we steer them elsewhere. But um, There'll be more coming up because there's a couple in the parking lot that we're doing diligence on right now. Yeah, interesting. So let me ask you this. If if there's a, a doctor, a surgeon, a medical professional that, you know, has an idea, uh, how do they bring that to you? What's the best way for them to reach out and say, I got this great idea. What do you think about it? So literally, usually they're through personal introductions, but a lot of folks find us on LinkedIn. And what we'll usually do is, say, look, if you will sign an NDA, but then we have very specific things that we look for. We we only focus really on ventral radiology and vascular surgery. 
So we don't do orthopedic devices. We don't do drugs. So we have a neuro focus because that's what we have good technology in and experience in. And then it's the same diligence process. Large market that's growing, clear unmet need. The proposed solution is excellent. We can get patent protection or it's already there. And it has to be technology that's achievable. Sometimes the designs on paper cannot be built. And then finally, of course, you need insurance reimbursement. If the product can't be purchased and paid for by insurance, it's a really tough go. So we have to know that reimbursement already exists. So those are the same things we bounce through every time. And some of it's a bandwidth issue, but also if it's not right in our wheelhouse of our area of expertise, we just have to tell folks, hey, go someplace else or we can do some other introductions for you. But it's basically the same thing every time. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It sounds like you really have a, a well-defined business model of how to bring the best products to market and stay within your very clearly defined uh, skill set. That's difficult to do sometimes, isn't it? Have you ever been tempted by something that maybe didn't fit that model exactly that you maybe uh, took a second look at? Yeah, it's really interesting. We just had one come to us that I probably did, gosh, three or four months of diligence on. And we had a lot of people involved. And we really like the idea. It's dramatically different. It is capital equipment and it is dramatically different. We've never done capital equipment before, but the value proposition is so stunning that we really considered working on that. But in the end, we said no, because we just thought it would take too much attention away from the area of expertise. And we thought we were going to have to maybe take some baby steps. It was going to be a new field for us. We've never sold capital equipment before. So it, it was really tempting because the idea is great. The technology is great. But in the end, we said, look, stay in our lane. But that was the closest we were tempted to veer off of the business model. Yeah, I think that's a great takeaway that you gave us too, because <clears throat> there are a lot of opportunities out there. There's so many, right? And so if, if you veer off your path of what you're very successful at and what you're the best at, uh, it can actually be moving backwards. So you have to be careful. Yeah, we don't want to lose focus. We do. We have that saying everybody has stay in your lane. We don't want to have to relearn something. We want to stick with things we already know. And also our physician network is interventional radiologists and vascular surgeons. So when we get ideas in those areas of clinical expertise, we have the network we can reach out to to get immediate feedback. So if it's another physician specialty, we don't have the network. It would need to be cold calling in a new network right now between physician investors and our current companies and physicians we've worked with before. That's just where we have the expertise and the network to get feedback. Right. <clears throat> What's your involvement with these companies when you do make an exit? Is there an ongoing involvement from you and your team of any kind? How does that kind of work? I'm just curious. Usually it depends. It can be all the way from, it's nice knowing you, you're out of here to a little bit of a transition. But for the most part, the manufacturing that we use through our contract manufacturing company, um, they'll stay with them for a while until they can transition the manufacturing to one of their facilities. But management, we're usually the, the first that they boot out. We're gone pretty quickly. Gotcha. And uh, how big is your team? How long have you been doing this? And how many products have you 
spent time and money investigating, looking into, entertaining, and how many have come to market? With the team, between the team, there's been four exits before. On top of that, we sold technology for two other products. They weren't companies, they were just products that sold. So there's been maybe six transactions. And the team, there's three partners here and the fourth semi-partner. So that's been the experience. But a lot of devices developed. We also have worked for other companies where we designed and developed devices. But as entrepreneurs, it's four exits and then two technology sales. But what we do with these new companies we start up, there's only one employee, and it's the CEO. So everything else we contract out. So we do contract manufacturing organization. Where needed, we get clinical, regulatory, uh, quality help. But that's the, the business model we use, which helps us get to the finish line faster because we already are using an approved quality management system through our vendors. And also the expense of full-time employees. We don't have to pay salaries and benefits. And with these startups, there is a lot of downtime. We order something, you're waiting for four weeks. You have five or six or 10 people on the payroll that really can't do anything, but you're paying them. So this has been the, the most successful business model for us. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm, I'm guessing there's a lot of downtime with approvals and, and uh, regulation and, and all that sort of thing, too. There's a lot of kind of up and down, a lot of uncertainty. Um, and plus, using vendors that are already very deeply entrenched into that space. So I'm sure there's a benefit probably to that as well. Yeah. The big benefit is we only pay for time as we use it. But when you have full-time employees, you're paying for time, whether they're busy or not. Yeah. So that was the realization four years ago when we started doing this, hey, there's a better business model. We don't rent buildings. We just have an executive office suite. We use a contract manufacturing company. We use their quality management system, their employees. We pay them for their time. And when there's downtime, because we're waiting for a vendor to supply something or we're waiting for regulatory approvals, we aren't paying anything. So it's really a clever way to control your expenses. And also too, it's you know, to rent a building, to build a clean room, to install a quality management system. We we have a six or nine month head start on folks who who want a brick and mortar company. We're day one when we have the first funding check, we're already started. And yes, that's a good point too, because I guess whoever gets the patent first wins, right? And so speed is is very important, not just for getting patents and things like that, but bringing a product to the market in, in the right amount of time and, and all of that. Would you say that your ability to move very quickly uh, on these opportunities is, is a, one of the big reasons for your success? Yeah, I think quickly and for less money. So we surprisingly small amounts of money can get us to the finish line. And you are right. The most important thing, the biggest value driver is always the regulatory approvals. So the quicker you can get those, and again, if we don't have to rent a building, build a clean room, hire and train the staff, because we're using existing facilities and existing trained folks, we can get there cheaper and faster because that biggest value inflection is when you tell the strategics, hey, we have FDA clearance. That's your big value drive. That's what they want to see. Those companies are great at marketing. They're great at selling. They're not fantastic at development. They're not fantastic at innovating. They like other folks like us to do the innovation. They like to sell the innovation. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it's interesting because just, I guess, in the marketplace in general, I see a lot of what I would call like hybrid business models like yourself. This is probably a little bit different than what was around 
maybe what would you say a decade ago or 15 years ago? What are your thoughts on, what are your thoughts on that? Not only within your industry specifically, but just across the market from a wide spectrum of kind of newer, more hybrid business models where there's a little bit more outsourcing. There's a little bit of a transition from the old school brick and mortar. We do everything ourselves, a traditional sense. And what are the main pieces of technology that you think make this a lot more possible and make sense now where it didn't in, you know, a short time ago? I think COVID had a lot to do with it and that companies realize folks can work from home and be remote and you can still have positive outcomes. Also too, in the old days, they used to call them incubators. They'd have one facility and put several companies in there, but it'd be a CEO for every different company. And um, we are not an incubator. We call ourselves a venture studio, but a lot of the elements existed before. And, but COVID forced it on you a little bit more where, again, you can do a lot of these documentation other than the physical device development and the physical testing, almost everything else from the quality management systems to the documents and the regulatory submissions can be done remotely without needing people to drive on site. So I think you're right. We have seen more of this. I don't think folks are doing exactly the way we do it, but there are a lot of these hybrid outfits now where folks don't have a brick and mortar building. They just have an office and then uh, use a contract manufacturer or contract companies. But I think for medical devices, it's it, that model lends itself well to get there because we have so many expenses because of the uncertainty of the testing requirements, the uncertainty of the regulatory approval process. Uh, I don't know anything about consumer products, how it works for that, but for medical devices, it's a great model. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think that um, we're going to see another iteration of kind of these hybrid business models? Another thing about COVID, I think it made it more acceptable, didn't it? Because when everyone was forced to work remotely and figure that out, I think a lot of people did it and, and, and realized that it actually worked pretty good if you went about it the right way. Um, do you see a kind of another iteration in your industry anywhere in the medical field of more hybrid models for maybe not for exactly what you guys do, but for uh, other types of businesses in the medical field? Now I'm not sure. I know a lot has been focused on AI and a lot's been focused on kind of robotics where they're trying to do things where clinicians can do procedures remotely. But you're right, the, the COVID event, how many times did I use Zoom before that happened? The handful. Now it's daily, several times a day, and it's become more acceptable. I don't know if there's another step to go. I think we're about as lean as we possibly can be. And I, I, unless you're doing maybe software development or app development, and it can all be remote, and there's really no physical product, it's just the code written, I think that's the only other step. I'm not sure what else can be done. We're about as lean as we can be and show up as infrequently as we possibly have to. Yeah, no, I wasn't really talking about you guys specifically, but maybe other kind of other niches within the medical industry uh, besides you guys. Do you see any big picture trends in the medical industry when it comes to transitioning into slightly different business models or doing things better than they've been done before? Of course, you're in the innovation uh, think tank center of, of the medical industry. So just many uh, big picture trends that you see coming or big opportunities that you think will uh, come out of some of this new technology. Coming out. That I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't really spent much time thinking about that. I, I think 
one thing I have seen is there's more collaboration with the universities to train the students more on this type of business model. But as far as new trends, I think right now things are getting close to what we're doing or again, slightly these derivations of what we're doing, but I'm not aware of anything else that's going on right now. We make widgets. So somebody's got to show up at a building and make something and put it in a box and test it. I'm not sure about any other future trends. Yeah, no worries. I, I'm not an expert in the medical field for sure. So <laughs> you, you would know better. Any, any piece of advice you can give to other entrepreneurs out there who are maybe either in the medical field or in the kind of inventor space or just looking for opportunities to be successful with? What are some takeaways that you could give us that have helped you be successful? I think the first thing I, I tell everyone, and I, I learned this right away my first job out of college, my first boss, is to build and grow the network and really work on the network. Because everything after my very first job came from the connections and the relationship building. So that combined with the second most important thing of become an expert at something. So most of the business owners that I know, whether um, no matter what they started in, they became an expert in something. So they then went off and started their own clinical business, regulatory business, or engineering design business. It's because they focused and became an expert in something. That leveraged with the network because you built relationships. And part of it is giving back and offering help and connecting more than just clicking on LinkedIn and asking someone to connect, communicating, going to all the meetings that are available locally, attending conferences when you can, those two things together. Once you're an expert and a known expert at something and you've got the network, the opportunities come to you. After that first career job that I had, which was 11 and a half years, everything else that's happened over the last 30 years has been folks reaching out to me. I didn't have to search. So it's because I'd laid a lot of hard work into getting out there, networking, building the relationships, and became an expert in something and was recognized. So that's probably the most important thing you can do. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I love how you put those two things together. And yeah, I think you're right. You have to have those two components, don't you? Yeah, I think so. Folks aren't going to reach out unless they think you can help, right? When I get the emails or the, when people ask to connect on LinkedIn, they want something from me. We're reaching out because can you help us or can you work with us? And that's 41 years of doing this. That's what happens. <laughs> Not the worst thing. Bill, thanks so much for your time with us today. And for folks who want to connect with you, LinkedIn is the best place. Yes. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? No, I hope something meaningful came out of this for folks. And yeah, always willing to build more into the network. And this is how I get my ideal phone. I don't have the ideas that comes to me. So the, the more we get, the better opportunities we have. Fantastic. Bill Cologne, single past. Thanks a lot for all that. That was, that was great. That was a lot of good information. Yeah, I hope so. It's really, it's been a fun career doing this stuff and it's really, I was just in Arizona last week speaking in the School of, of Entrepreneurship, and they did a podcast, which they'll push out pretty soon, and they'll put on their YouTube. Literally the, the same stuff. The kids want to know, how do I start a business? How do I get involved in a business? Why would somebody want me to do a startup? How can a startup come and recruit me and stuff? So it's they're working on it a little bit more through the universities of giving training. I never had that. 
Yeah. I took my classes in chemical engineering and got a job and was fortunate it was in medical devices and then learned it on the job. I wish I would have had some training. I, did, I started my first company, co-founded my first company at 34. I wish I would have done it five years early. Because yeah. once I did, that, that was my biggest regret. Man, I should have done this early. And because uh, that's, that's funny. The highs are so much Because that's higher. the learning experience, right? Like it, it, you, you learn as you go, but until you do it, that's when you really learn, right? Yeah. And I think too, I, I had opportunities earlier, but I was scared to do it because it was unknown to me. Yeah. And so I had a couple offers and can you do this? I'm like, no. And gosh, what about this? And it's very risky. But then once I did it, I just remember the first week going, oh my God, this is the feeling you have of, of self-worth and contribution is increased a hundredfold over being an employee. Yeah. So that's, that's really, and again, it's not for everybody. Some folks like to go in at eight and leave at five and yeah. never have to check an email after 5 p.m. That's fine. But I just have the, I guess, high risk personality. And Yeah, I was going to say, I totally agree. I don't think it is for everyone. I think a lot of people go at it thinking, starting out, 50 hours a week should do it. And I don't know. Some people can do it. It works sometimes, but not usually. It's not my experience. You know? Yeah, I work some every day of the week. I try on Sundays to not work more than an hour or two. Saturdays is usually four or five hours. And then because I do Asia and Europe and U.S., a lot of times the first Zoom's at 6 a.m. and the last Zoom's at 8 p.m. Yeah, that's a long um, Zoom spread, man. I, yeah, I hate those late-night Zooms. I'm like, oh, boy. But that's I have to for Asia and China. That's, yeah. Yeah, it, it happens. But it doesn't really feel like work. I enjoy mm. it, and I, and I like it, and so it's not tough to do. Yeah, and you work that much, and you've been at it for a long time yet. I remember... 105 hours a week and I couldn't count after that. I don't know if I've ever did 100 hours. That's incredible. Oh man, you you start you you, you don't even heat up your leftovers. It takes too long. Well, that's, my <laughs> wife does my meal prep. So people yeah. ask me to go to lunch and I go I don't do lunch. I don't leave the facility. This is my office in in Lake Forest, California and one or two days a week I'll work from my home office, but I don't have time to drive to a lunch, wait for a waiter and then get food and then drive back. So I said, yeah. if you want to meet me, you can come to my office and I'm going to throw my meal prep in the microwave and stuff and sit at my computer while I eat. But I, I can't afford to do lunch. It just yeah. takes it's, it's costly for sure. Yeah. I'll reserve it for here and there, but yeah, I'm usually not that guy either. I never was at the office. Like we're going to lunch. I'm like, see ya. I'm going <laughs> to, yeah. I'm going to eat in my five or 10 minutes and then I'm going to cut out early because I got other stuff to do. But yeah, yeah. I think there's a, a lot of people who just, you know, they don't know what it's going to take and they fizzle out. I think there's a lot of unrealistic expectations out there. I, I see that's the that. thing because they don't know. And that's why when I was at Arizona State, they're putting their program together. That's what they really need to focus on to give. They told me kids were told, oh, if you have an idea, you can make any idea into a company. And I'm going, no, don't tell them that. That's not right. <laughs> yeah. It sounds yeah. nice on a cereal box, but it doesn't really work. But give them the tools to evaluate and give them the tools to know what to expect. That's what you are talking about, that it's hard work, it's risky. And the one other thing too, I was trying to tell them, be prepared you know, financially. The startups don't pay well, or your upside is equity. And these are iffy. If they hit, it's great. If they don't, you could have been making more money as an employee at a giant company like Medtronic or Edwards. You have to be able to withstand that. And whether it's 
being smarter with your expenses or living with roommates or having your significant other pay for more stuff, get yourself financially in shape so you can take the risk. Because if you always spend up to your income and can't take a 30% lower salary that has an equity upside, then you'll never be able to do these startups because they don't pay like the big companies do. So mm -hmm. that's a little bit minor message, but the network and then the expertise was really critical for everything that's happened with me. And my partner's the same. These guys are experts in other things too that I'm not. And that's why we complement each other and, and we can do these companies. Yeah, it's funny. And I'm going to, we're going to add all this stuff. This, we're going to take these clips, whatever one's work, because this is good stuff, but and fit it in there. But I know Alex Ramosi is always talking about how a business partner who thinks exactly like you is the worst business partner you could have because the same stuff, who's going to fill in the gaps. So it's good to disagree with people as long as you agree on the big picture stuff and the goals and everything, but you need people who can see things from a different angle, a different yeah. point of view, who have different backgrounds. My two partners. So one of the partners is a guy I hired out of college in 1991. So that's how long we've known each other. But he went on and became a neurovascular expert. So he is from the neck up, he knows everything. And all of my work was in peripheral vascular, basically from the neck down. Oh, that's funny. And so we both could raise money. We both are engineers. We both have good clinical backgrounds. So he was in came to me four years ago and said, look, the two of us work together. Your investor outreach is a little bit different than mine. Your physician network is a little bit different than mine. So if we put these two together, we've got it all covered. And he was so right. We got this unbelievable deal flow. We looked at a hundred things and then started three companies. And it's because people knew us, our reputation, and we had literally the entire body covered. So yeah, it was great. And then the third partner, is a super smart technical guy. I'm a chemical engineer, but he's a mechanical slash biomedical engineer. So this electronics design for this single time, I had no clue how to do that, but he knew how to do that. So we had the value in the diversity with the, the expertise of the partner. So you're exactly right. A partner knows exactly what you do. doesn't have much value. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something we figured out. My partner is extremely COO. She is a COO, one of the best ones. I am a horrible COO. Don't ever hire me to be a COO. I'm a CEO. I'm a tech guy. I'm an inventor. I, I fix problems. I engineer solutions, but she's so fantastic on the other side. Anytime we butt heads and it's a COO related operations thing, I step aside. I'm like, if you say that's the way to do it, then that's what we do. Yeah. And I think I've been reasonably good. And actually both of us have been good at identifying talent. So we figured out where do we need something that we don't know? And over the course of the years, there's probably been like five people that when I was looking for something, I know they're going to be stars and every, and literally five for five, where I knew they just had something special about them. And my partner did the same thing. And those people, again, they'll have a skill set or something that you don't have. They're going to add expertise and tremendous value. And yeah, you've got to hire folks that know more than you do about certain things and that's where we've done a pretty good job at that yeah i've never really had an ego i don't know why i just i've never had one and i hate being the guy who has all the answers i don't want to be that guy because it weighs heavy on you if all if every single big question has to rely on you i think that's a major problem yeah i think I some people want that that's a mistake if that's happening you need to get someone who knows the things that you don't because you right. can't be good at everything
And the other thing too, that's why every company we start literally is a single employee company. We don't care about building empires and saying, oh, I've got a hundred employees or whatever, because we don't have egos. For mm-hmm. The ego is to hire people, mostly through contracts and relationships that know what we don't know. So we can finish development, get regulatory approvals and sell to a strategic. And again, I have zero employees. I'm the boss of no one. Mm-hmm. It just, I don't, yeah, in companies, there were times when I had 125 people reporting to me. Don't care about that. And when we, we were thinking about adding another partner, and we, the problem is most of those folks have the ego and they want to have these big teams and they defer to their teams for this stuff. And we don't have, we contribute, we offer technical solutions, we offer design solutions, clinical solutions. So we can't afford to have managers join the team. We need we need the Indians, not the chiefs. And right, so right. that's who we add as the consultants or as um, you know, part of the vendors that we use to get these things to completion. So it's like minded and we're so like minded we would be for five minutes considered adding another partner. We said, No, we got the squad and if we're limited with what we can do and there's no more bandwidth, so be it. Not the worst thing, yeah. Keeping that balance is tough. I know I like we work with a lot of coaches and consultants and, and course creators, a lot of people in that space, but we also work with small business too. And basically our thing is we leverage technology to its fullest to help them scale better, whether that be customer acquisition or fulfillment better or happier customers, all their tech systems, automations, that sort of thing. And we are always balancing like doing work for clients where it's getting more bandwidth in the door, more business, more volume, and then working on the, like the automation and the efficiency side to keep the margins up as you grow. And so as you scale anything, there's always a balance and you have to be careful of that. Yeah. That's been a, some interesting experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was, it was great connecting. Thanks a lot for all well, that thanks. awesome stuff. We're going to s- s- put this all together and make us look good and we'll shoot you all those links. Okay. And feel free to share it or whatever. So thank goodness yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll end up putting it on the single pass website. I push it out to all of our investor base. And, and put it on LinkedIn and usually get pretty good response from us. Cool. That's awesome, man. There's probably, you're not really uh, up our normal uh, client alley in the uh, medical field, but if you need any help with uh, kind of tech automation, Zapier, your internal workings, your tech stack, anything like that, reach out. I don't know if anything comes to well, mind. Not right now, because again, we're, it's not quite in that. We're, we're considering a couple of things that may, but to branch out. Can't reveal right now. But, okay. Okay. Yeah. So they're early, and again, I, I try to stretch myself a little bit, but I also feel a little uncomfortable if I'm not knowledgeable. This where I'm, my area of expertise. I feel very comfortable looking at these deals, but a few things get put in front of us that are left and right of what we normally do, and we evaluate. But uh, we'll see. But right now, we're just we got those three companies. Actually, there's six overall in various stages. I just got to offload a couple of things. <laughs> gotcha. You got it? Got to sell single pass. So you look for a press release when we get FDA clearance, then look for a press release when we sell, and then I'll have some free time. That sounds good, man. I'll make sure I send you an email so you have it. So if anything comes up that's technical and you don't know what to do, shoot me a line. I will. Thanks, Jay. Great to meet you. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. You too.